My name is Summer Selleck. I'm here with Drusilla Ramey, and our, who is our guest today, and Mika Domingo, who is my co-host for the day. And this is California Women Lawyers' Seat at the Table. Mika, do you want to tell us a little bit about our, our speaker today? Yes. Um, Drew Ramey is the former executive director of the National Association of Women Judges, former tenured member of the Golden Gate University School of Law faculty, and former executive director and general counsel of the Bar Association of San Francisco. While serving with the Bar Association, Drew transformed the organization into one of the nation's leaders in diversifying the profession and in the provision of legal services to the poor. For more than 30 years, Drew has been devoted to diversity, equal opportunity, and access in the justice system. She has chaired the ACLU of Northern California and the San Francisco's Commission on the Status of Women and served as a co-founder and board leader of California Women Lawyers. Drew has received numerous honors and awards in recognition of the contributions she has made to the legal profession, including the prestigious Margaret Brent Women Lawyers of Achievement Award, the American Bar Association's highest honor for women in the profession, the American Jewish Committee's Learned Hand Award, and the National Bar Association's Wiley Brenton Award. Drew currently serves as the chair of the Equal Rights Advocates and sits on the boards of the International Association of Women's Judges and the Habeas Corpus Resource Center, which monitors 743 of California's death row inmates. Drew is a charismatic public speaker and fierce civil rights advocate who received her bachelor's degree magna cum laude from Harvard University and her Juris Doctorate from Yale Law School. So I, I just wanted to jump in and tell you, I, I told you this prior to us recording, that um, I've seen you speak before. And the last time I saw you speak, it was November, I think, 17th of, of last year. It was a really rough day, um, and you were speaking at the Contra Costa County MCLE Spectacular, and your speech was really, really moving, at least in, to me, because I needed to hear something that was positive at that point. Um, but it was also a polarizing speech. I remember a lot of people stood and clapped and, and a lot of people didn't and a lot of people left the room. You know, um, I just wanted to thank you for that. And if, did you want to expand on, on, on that? Well, I must say the, uh, <laughs> the people who, it, it, the, a lot of women stood up and then you had a lot of men, uh, kind of of a certain age who, it was the tyranny of the standing ovation. You know, they didn't want to stand up, but they didn't want to look like fools, so they kind of reluctantly <laughs> stood up. But I didn't notice people left because I was in the front of the room. But, you know, the, the fact is that, um, that when you just sort of talk turkey about what's going on in the profession, a lot of which is not very good, um, a lot of people find it um, upsetting, but, but they won't deny it because all they have to do is look around at whatever meeting they may be at that is legally related and they see that we are not a diverse profession and in many ways it may be getting substantially worse as I said in that speech. On the other hand, um, there are a lot of people um, who are fighting very hard to change that uh, and California Women Lawyers has a lot of them within its membership and similar organizations, not as good of course, but around the country uh, similarly. But uh, 
But I think that uh, particularly, I think, on the race issue, it is very difficult, I think, for older uh, white people in general, particularly white men in the profession, to really recognize that that the fact is that their uh, their race and their um, status of not being visibly uh, gay or uh, LGBTQ and their uh, and their gender really does uh, give them uh, a privilege just by virtue of that status. And it's it's kind of it's hard to recognize that until uh, until it's really brought home to you uh, uh, in one way or another. And I sort of try. Uh, to do that, and that you know, so expressions like Eva Patterson's, uh, who's of course the leading African American civil rights leader in the area, you know, that of course I'm tired of being black all day. You know, that's the kind of thing those people do not like to hear. On the other hand, every African American and, and many other people whose whose differences from the what's considered the norm in the profession are obvious just crack up because they they, yeah. they know what what this is about. Right. You know, we actually recently did a, a speech, Megan, if you want to talk about that a little bit, we, we were speaking on diversity, and we had a very interesting response. That's uh, right. Um, so, Summer and I did recently counter that situation where we were told that the demographics of the population should not dictate or reflect participation of minorities in the legal profession. So basically, Summer and I were asked... We were asked to give some numbers and, and give a presentation, and we were met with reluctance of the crowd. And they, you know, we had one person actually say, "Well, if there's 50% women in the state, why should there be 50% of women in, in the legal profession? I don't think it needs to actually be that way. I think it's fine the way it is." And what would you, what would you have said to that? Because I, I was kind of at a loss. Well, you know, there are a lot of arguments about why uh, diversity is good, and there are a lot of reasons why the numbers are so low. Uh, um, as to as to why it's important, I mean, lawyers really are officers of the court, and they, in fact, stand at with judges at the doors of, and they are judges, of course, at the doors of justice. And uh, I mean, the statistics just for say immigrant children. If you have a lawyer, then you're like 80, 90 percent likely to stay here. Uh, people without papers. If you don't, then they're about one percent. So. There, there is absolutely no question that that lawyers have an enormous amount of power uh, uh, to change people's lives uh, and to um, and to ensure that justice uh, actually is um, equally uh, distributed. Uh, but uh, but the fact is that if you have a profession where people have kind of well, our Supreme Court is a classic example, pretty much kind of one experience. Uh, yeah. and have never experienced other things, uh, even if they don't believe themselves to be biased, the fact is that how can you really know what is going on in the streets if you've never been in the streets? How can you really know what it is like uh, to be um, someone who is not a white male in the street, male in the uh, and non disabled person in the in if if you've never experienced it I had you know I speak on this sort of stuff all the time I've worked mm -hmm. a lot with people who are not just like me but it wasn't until I was standing in the rain with a, a woman in a wheelchair trying to get a cab at night in New York that I realized that cabs don't stop for people in wheelchairs and then the most wonderful thing happened two 
very beautiful Asian-American young woman's, women stood forward and on the street right next to us, and this cab screeches to a halt, and I'm thinking, boy, isn't that typical? Yeah. And one of them turns to us and says, I believe this is for you. Awesome. And, uh, but it story. really, it was not until that cab and many others were, refused to stop for us that I, that I knew about that, even though I'd done films on disability rights and so on, but I'm not a person. Uh, with uh, the kind of disability that, that gets you discriminated against and the kind of fear and so on. So I, I, I can see uh, uh, why people would say, well, you know, quotas are a bad thing, although in this country they thought it was just a great thing when it was keeping out Jews and so forth, a lot of them did. Uh, but uh, I've actually been somebody who's always been in favor of quotas because I think it's the only thing that really gets people to uh, actually pay attention to the, to the issue. But that's, of course, not enough realistic in this country, although there is kind of a quota for uh, women and people of color, you know, the old, uh, we had, we've hired our woman. Yeah, we've got our uh, one woman on the board, yeah. so we've, <laughs> yeah. we've made it work. That yeah. must be enough yeah, for exactly, some reason. Exactly. <laughs> so anyhow, but the particular status of women is, um, the, and, and people of color and so on to, to really uh, be able to bring their experiences is important. The, the uh, appearance of justice is incredible extraordinarily important and you know reams written about you know when you walk into a courtroom and you don't see anyone that looks like you yeah at any level then it is very difficult to uh, think that you're going to get justice and of course there's always winners and losers and even if you lose legitimately if you look around that courtroom you see people know nothing about your kind of experience or that you feel don't uh and you see nothing of yourself in that system then you feel it is because of those differences uh so even when it has been a just result and I think judges try to do that uh, if it is within the context of uh, something that has the appearance of being stacked against you, then you feel that it was an illegitimate uh, decision. So that is extraordinarily important as well. And, and of course, there's no question that people of color are more likely to serve uh, the communities of color, not 100%, not even probably you know 50%, but the fact is far more likely than uh, their counterparts uh, in, uh, that are not uh, people of color. And uh, so just in terms of service to the community, uh, there's, uh, it, it, to not have people of color in this profession in any numbers at all clearly exacerbates the socioeconomic problems that, that uh, permeate this society. So. That was an amazing answer. Lots of information. I think maybe we should we should step back here and, and ask you the, the simple question of how did you become a lawyer? Why did you become a lawyer? Well, let me just say, I came from a very privileged background, and I've been a, a civil rights kind of a lawyer my whole life, but the yeah. people I really hold in awe are people who did not come from a privileged background, particularly you know economically, and who do this work because the pay gap is enormous. Uh, it's just, it's staggering. You know, the beginning lawyer in, in a legal services type job is like 25 to 40,000 maybe. For public? Be yes, yeah. And, yeah, and the beginning the beginning salary for somebody in a in a not terribly distinguished large firm is 160 or 180,000. It is simply appalling, but anyhow, so how, but in terms of myself personally, I grew up in a family. My mother was a medical school professor mm -hmm. and a national feminist speaker that yes. helped, although that, she wasn't doing that kind of speaking uh, when I was growing up, but 
Uh, and my father was, and she came from an extremely poor background, but one in which her mother told her she could do anything and you got to have an education or they can do anything you want with it. She was very good looking. She was very funny. She really, uh, and she was lucky, as she puts it. You know, the difference between her and somebody in Bosnia is, you know, absolutely is yeah. an accident of birth. So, and my father came from, she was a impoverished New York Jew being raised by a single parent. My uh, my father came up in a pretty privileged background, was a Southern Baptist, but uh, and, was, uh, and he worked for, uh, he was a public uh, lawyer for a long time and then eventually an Atomic Energy Commissioner, but he, they both, coming oh, from great. wildly different backgrounds, really felt uh, that you just have to give back to society and the luckier yeah. you are, the more you have to give back. And so in my family, it would have been considered a tragedy if I had gone into, say, business <laughs> or business law. I mean, they would have thought, you know, well, they would have been, you know, re they would have been supportive, but they would have been saddened. They would have that. thought that was uncharacteristic of you. Well, but they also would have thought that it was uh, outside of what they showed. Them. Outside of what their example had set, really, they were very, very generous people, also. So. Uh, and maybe because, you know, and, you know, I don't think anyone in my father's family had ever met a Jew before he married uh, my mother. They met in New York City in a boarding house. Uh, yeah. uh, but they were, that I figured, I thought they kind of looked at her and she was so good, and they figured, we got to keep this one. But, but, <laughs> but, the, <laughs> but, the, but for whatever reason, they were surprisingly tall, accepting of somebody very different from from uh, the kind of people they were, although they were kind people. But so I, you know, I didn't know that I was going to be a lawyer. I thought I was going to be my mother when I first went to college, and that I was disabused of that almost immediately. Uh -huh. You know, I accidentally tossed a test tube across the room. You know, and I mean, it was absurd. So, uh, so I knew <laughs> I was then going to go sort of into the social side. I didn't quite want to. I didn't want to get a PhD for God's sake. I mean, I wasn't interested enough in anything to do that. Mm -hmm. And so by about junior year. It just seemed uh, that law school might be the way to go. And as it happened through just, again, an accident of fate, uh, the, in 1968, which was the year I entered law school, that yes. was the first year men could not get deferments from the Vietnam War oh. uh, for entering graduate school. So suddenly, that was the year where the law schools talk about quotas, dropped what was essentially a quota on women, uh, and uh, went from Yale went from, for example, five to about 25. So I've decided to call my friends and, and myself, you know, the Rosie the Riveters of the Vietnam War, really. And it by happens, again, a historical fact is that in 1968, the civil rights movement finally had an impact on law schools. And and so the law schools not only went from, you know, leaped up on women, they, leap, they leapt up in uh, people of color. Uh, and really started to go to the South for the first time to, tr to traditionally black schools, to schools that had larger numbers of particularly African-Americans, very few Asians at that time, very few um, Latinos, but, uh, but it started to open up for African-Americans uh, and uh, in a fairly dramatic way. So you had both of those groups starting to move through. Um, so again, I, uh, you know, I don't know where I would have gotten into law school were it not for the Vietnam War and so on, but, uh, but the fact is that once I was in law school, it was very clear that I was going to do public interest law. And we made Yale pass fail practically the second we got there, our class did. And so, you know, and everybody disappeared to work in various civil rights kinds of activities and anti-war activities. Nobody went to class much. And so, you know. Interesting. Um, 
You know, it was it was 1968 though when you went to law school, so I'm, I'm guessing 1964 when you went into college. Mm -hmm. And you're talking about how your your parents were very supportive of you getting an education. That's not necessarily the most normal thing back in the 60s. I mean, well, the cliche about it is that for you know middle class, upper middle class white families, you know, you sent your daughters to college to find husbands. husbands. But yeah. my parents. It was, uh, if I had gone straight from college, if I had not gone straight from college to law school, they would have been terrified that somehow I would end up chained by an apron to a stove in suburbia or something. You know? yeah. So in my family, <laughs> it was absolutely necessary, A, to get a graduate degree. There was no question that they would have been cool. depressed and alarmed if I hadn't. And secondly, uh, that I kind of got a move on about it. Uh, so it was absolutely, and my mother, you know, went through college starting when she was 15 uh, at a time when it, it was the height of the depression or the depths of the depression. But in New York City, you could go to college for free. Yeah. And yeah. she did, and she was smart. And she, again, lucked out because a professor of hers hired her to be, uh, at the, when Queens College opened in 1937, the guy who was hired to be the uh, first head of their Department of Chemistry had had her for a student uh, at Brooklyn College and said, I want you to come teach at Queens, but you're going to have to get a master's at Columbia. Uh, so uh, she did. She did both of those things. But for, and for a man to hire uh, a young woman to teach chemistry, and then she went on to be you know, the first woman to be the, um, the faculty of the University of Chicago Law School, uh, medical school, and yeah. uh, and so you know I just I was uh, not the first anything in my family. Yeah, but I mean, so that brings me to one of the questions we had, which is, you know, you became a lawyer in 1972, and... And then you ran for election in 1978 as first woman to chair the board of directors of the ACLU. Well, and you know, what happened with the ACLU to me is just the classic, the classic thing. A group of young women sort of swept into San Francisco yes. in the early mm -hmm. 70s. Oh, uh, there were already some real giants out there, like Louise Rennie, and you know, lots of. There were quite a number, but nothing like the numbers that started coming. So, by happenstance, I ended up interviewing for a job that I was completely unqualified for at the ACLU and didn't get. But they really helped me out in lots of ways. And then they wanted uh, several of us who didn't get that job to start a women's committee. And the guy who was the executive director at the time was one of these people who was so clueless when it came to how to deal with you know, women and people of color. I mean, the guy was truly incompetent in that way, and culturally incompetent, I guess you'd say. Yeah. A, a jerk is what we thought. But anyhow, fair. <laughs> but we decided it was time to take over the ACLU of Northern California. And it happened. My husband's then wife was one of those powerful women who was older than we were named Faye Stender, who, after whom the Faye Stender Award is I think is I've named. heard of her before. Yes, and so Faye, I knew Faye through sort of old left circles, because my first job had been a little old left law firm. And so I went to her and I said, Faye, we want to we take over the ACLU. We can't. We don't have a stature. You do. If you want to get on that board, they have to let you do it. So she got on the board. She made herself the head of the nominating committee and let this be a lesson to all of us. Nominating committees are where it happens. She made herself the head of the nominating committee, which she sort of stacked. And within six months, we, a group of us, swept onto the board of the ACLU. And then uh, two years later, I was the first chair, woman chair. Did you feel throughout that process that um, you've experienced some sort of discrimination? And well, you know, I mean, there was really one of the things that I think makes it, made it easier for my group of 
women lawyers my generation than for current younger women lawyers is that there were a lot of us coming in, but it was still a pretty small group. And we didn't know everybody, but you knew a lot of them. And a lot of the older women lawyers, like Faye, like Louise, like Joanne Garvey mm. and others, saw it as their responsibility to take us under their wing. And they did. I mean, California Women Lawyers was all about that, as a matter of fact. And, uh, and so really, um, we had a kind of a sisterhood in a way. And you know, there were all these women's groups. Everybody was in a women's group where you didn't, we didn't even talk about politics. We just sort of shot the breeze, you know. But you really had, you felt that you were in it for yourself and for women, you know, that you were part of a movement. That's right. And that it was kind of a revolution. And now I think yeah, there are why do, huge... Why do you think that's changed? Because it's not... I don't know. Well, there's a generational thing okay. of uh, there, are, there are such huge numbers that in a way you don't know everybody mm -hmm. and there isn't quite as much of a sense of, uh, you know, you've got, to, you've got to reach out. And yet the fact is that there aren't a lot more women at the top of firms now than there were then, even yeah. with the fact that 42% of the associates or 44% of the associates are women. And for people of color, things went along pretty well until Proposition 209. Mm -hmm. Uh, the Anti-Affirmative Action Initiative in 1996 and 7, which basically decimated the pipeline of Mexican-Americans and African-Americans and Native Americans particularly, and certain groups within the Asian community, lots of groups within the Asian community. I mean, some left or emerged pretty unscathed, but most not. Um, so, uh, so there's a kind of an illusion that... Uh, that it's a different situation and that you don't need that kind of sisterhood thing anymore when quite the opposite is is true and that's why i was really pleased to see that um, that ms jd started i thought that yes. was a good move and and it has a big mentoring uh component um and groups like california women lawyers seem to me to be as, as healthy as ever and uh, and and it is it is critical i mean what is there is no question that at the top of the profession uh, African Americans and uh, Mexican Americans are a vanishing breed. They're gonna, there are now, I think, probably fewer than there were when I was running the Bar Association in the 80s and 90s, which is just appalling because there never were very many uh, to begin with. Yeah. Why do you think there's, there's diminishing numbers? Well, uh, in the firms, I, I feel, this is sort of a technical thing that I alluded to, you know, the the way the credit is given and where, that dictates where the client's money flows is a, a wildly discriminatory um, um, set of procedures, and, it, and particularly something called origination credit, mm -hmm. uh, where you can have a woman, you know, you'll have a corporation that insists that a woman or a person of color be the person doing the most work and directing the work, and yet... What they don't realize is that when their money goes to the firm, it's not that person that gets the lion's share. It's somebody who probably didn't lift a finger on That's that right. yeah. on that work, uh, who is called the origination partner or the relationship partner. And then what corporations actually, the very few that have tried to penetrate this, this system, uh, the firms, it's a shell game. They suddenly call, they drop the designation origination partner and they pick up some other designation. But the result is the same, that the money flows to uh, senior white men, and they then pass it on to junior white men that, that they feel are uh, 
are uh, just like them, only maybe not as good looking or something. But you know, otherwise, that's their their error, and so and so they're inherited. And the and the corporations let that happen. I mean, the fact that they let their origination partner dictate who the next one is going to be within the firm to me is absolutely extraordinary. So there are many, and there are you know, look, I mean, there's a lot of talk about implicit bias, and I there's a, and it's a huge factor. But I think there's plenty to be said about. Explicit. Explicit bias, yeah. uh, and I think that uh, that the uh, you know well you know she's good, but does she really have the fire in the belly? Or you know somebody that they think makes a good uh, an Asian American they think makes a good associate, nose to the grindstone, and all those kinds of cliches. Then when it comes up to partnership, ah, but you know do they have that that uh, pizzazz that we need in partners? Yes, and then you look around at some of their partners who are the very antithesis of pizzazz, but right. even if that's uh, what they really should be looking for. So uh, so there, there really are the insistence in, of the legal profession, particularly in large firms, that all of these decisions, whether it comes to evaluation or assignment of work or who's going to be the, man, the managing partner who's going to be on these committees, they, even though they feel that subjectivity is the only way to do it because it's, they are so very special and unique. Uh, something a claim that the that corporations really don't make anymore, but the fact that law firms are still making that um, that kind of protestation to me is uh, is shows how benighted our profession truly truly is. And I think that things like the new equal pay law that was passed uh, in 2015 that Equal Rights Advocates was largely responsible for. Uh, along with, of course, Hannah Beth Jackson and the legislature, but it was a huge yeah. movement that got that through. That law, I think, is going to start to be uh, to penetrate some of this in law firms because basically, once you can show a disparity of jobs that are substantially similar, which let's face it, law jobs generally are, then if there's a if there's a gender disparity, which there most definitely is, then it, the burden is on the employer to show that it's not based on gender, and that is hard. That is hard to do, and you're starting to see now pay discrimination actions in big law firms like Chadbourne Park in New York, like Sedgwick out here, although I don't know the merits of any of those cases, uh -huh. but those I think it's no accident that these cases are not, that used to be making partner cases, the few that you saw. Mm -hmm. Now it's pay, mm -hmm. uh, yeah. and I think that they uh, will begin to make a difference. Although we do know um, some people don't tend to look at the equal pay as a myth. Um, what can you say to those people who say that this disparity is simply a myth? Well, there's absolutely no question. I mean, you get, I mean, there are a lot of uh, untruths flying around since November 8th. Fake news? A lot of fake news. Alternate but, facts. But, but to actually, <laughs> to actually <laughs> deny that there is not an enormous disparity uh, between uh, we, we were actually in a room recently, and and they were denying that. Well, they might as well tell them that they might as well join the Holocaust deniers. You know, I mean, I'm not to attribute. I mean, they aren't the same in terms of tragedy, of course. But and I don't want to be, you know, like the press secretary or anything. No. But but you know, to it, it, to deny that there is a disparity and that every study that has been done that I know of, or virtually every study has has demonstrated that uh, at least 40 or 50 percent of it is attributable to factors such as race and gender, yeah. uh, it seems to me is uh, just closing your eyes to what, uh, to what the realities are. How you deal with that uh, is another issue. And that's where I think the 
you know, it's it's hard to to deal with the implicit bias uh, issue because even when you demonstrate, you know, the you know clearly the same memo, the exact same memo, right, if they yeah. think it's written by this an African American associate, they they yeah. say, I don't even know how he got into NYU, and if they think it's a white person, they say, you know, not bad at all. You know, you can you can demonstrate that stuff till you're blue in the face, but it's seen as kind of gimmicky somehow, mm -hmm. uh, and somehow or other, they push that aside. But, but I think that marginally, the implicit bias thing I think wakes up some people. I mean, my husband, who's a very very progressive person and has done a lot of race cases himself and so on. Uh, represent a lot of uh, people in prison and he um, he had this aha moment on implicit bias when he was reading about Brian Stevenson uh, who is of course you know world-renowned uh, um, lawyer and he turns the page and there's a picture of an african-american man and he thought but where's Brian Stevenson and mm -hmm. he and he was shocked that he had assumed that he was of course white and that he really did say, well, where is he? You know, I mean, and, and so I think that sometimes, in his case, he didn't need an implicit bias study to make him realize this was a problem, but it's maybe the, at the margins, but how you, wake, how you wake people up, I think the main, the only way that you can really wake people up is to have enough people who are different and not just that one token person that, uh, that they come to realize that whatever it is they kind of assumed really it wasn't true. Uh, That's interesting. Um, I was actually at the annual conference for CWL recently talking about implicit bias. Um, and one of the questions I received on the panel was what, what, what you should say to somebody who believes implicit bias is a myth in directing outcomes in the legal profession. I mean, you sort of touched upon that. Um, but I think it's easy for people to admit I don't know if it's easy for them to admit, but people are more inclined to say, oh, I'm, I'm not biased explicitly, I'm, I'm not a racist, I'm not whatever. But when it comes to implicit bias, people like to deny that they, that, that exists. Um, and what, would you, what would you say to well, that? I, you know, I mean, those studies are, it's, it's kind of hard to get around those studies uh, uh, that show very clearly that, uh, and it's not just white men and white straight men without disabilities who feel, I mean, that across the board, uh, people, as the uh, Harvard IAT test has shown very clearly, people tend to mm -hmm. to favor the privileged group. Uh, and there, and a, those a lot of those studies are irrefutable in terms of uh, people, in fact, favoring. To me, the most interesting of those studies is the police chief study, where, you know, you're told uh, that there are two candidates, and one of them is strong in street smarts, and the other is strong in book smarts. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they hire the man no matter what, whether it's the one, and then they justify it by saying that, that the characteristic that they have is really the most important, with a completely straight face, you know, and so there, there's, you know, you have these studies that, that I think uh, make it, uh, Logically impossible. My my brother, who's a doctor, said, it, "You know, it's it's like though the the man who comes into the hospital and says you know, his problem is he's dead." And so they said, "Well, you're not dead." He said, "Yes, I am. No, you're not." So they say, "Well, do dead men bleed?" Well, no, they don't. He says. So they take a little 
scalpel and they nick him and he starts to bleed. He said, well, I'll be damned. He said, dead men do bleed. <laughs> so. Changing facts so in order to fit. Yes, exactly. And, and just clinging to, uh, to things. But, you know, I, I have a test of my own uh, implicit bias that I, that, and I flunk it still every time. And that is I'm driving down 101 and some jerk is cutting in and out of traffic in a way that is unnerving. If it's a white man, which it almost always is, uh, I think to myself, jerk, uh-huh. or worse. If it's a woman or a person of color, I often think, who does she think she is? I mean, I don't quite think it, but that's kind of my attitude. And that assumption, not only uh, you know, of actually uh, giving them the benefit of a privilege that <laughs> they haven't yeah. even asked for, uh, but uh, but really being almost angry at at a woman or a person of color for for in fact behaving like the jackass that uh, white people get away with acting as you know I mean that's pretty bad and yet I know that I still have that yeah. uh, so I I I I, the, I don't know the answer except to go back to the fact that we live in an incredibly segregated environment both where we live physically for most people. Uh, and where we work for most people, and the higher up you are, the more segregated it is on every dimension of difference. And so I think, uh, including class, of course, and so I think that, uh, that that is one of the reasons that it is so extraordinarily important to, uh, to get um, diversity, true diversity uh, at the top, uh, uh, is to begin to uh, just unconsciously people's prejudices and assumptions change when what they see is different and when and when there's more than just one you can't you know if a if a woman or minority exceeds expectations they say oh well she's very special whereas uh she's an outlier yeah exactly whereas uh uh and if she fails of course all women fail Mm -hmm. whereas you know when a white person screws up they don't say gee i guess we can't hire any more white people now do they no so uh but when there's a bunch of us uh, then it those those it doesn't come down change. to yeah it doesn't come down to your race or your sex or, or or your gender or whatever it comes down to what you actually do without any biases your work ethic and what have you yeah and you yeah. know and that and of course leadership is so incredibly important uh, uh, I used a different I, a phrase and I will here too but you know the old you get them you get them by their uh, well, let's say wallets and their hearts and minds will follow. Mm-hmm. Well, if you have a leader at the top, a strong leader at the top, who basically says, hey, you know, this is the way it is, and if you don't go along with this particular program, you, you better start thinking about another place to work. Well, mm-hmm. after a while, they may resent it at the beginning, but the fact is it's just another thing that they have to do they may not believe in, and after a while, uh, when you start uh, doing something, like hiring people of color, first of all, you learn a lot about uh, about other people who are different from you but also after a while you know if you have a cognitive dissonance thing between what you believe and what you're doing usually what you're doing wins out yeah uh so uh i uh so i think that uh leadership from the top in the profession in the legal profession is absolutely essential if you have a managing partner in one of these firms who really says this is what's going to happen here and this is the way bonuses are going to work and this is the way pay is going to be allocated 
then that's then that's what's going to happen. I mean, the worst that can happen to that person is that he or she's out, and he overwhelmingly. Uh, but um, but you know, so that a diversity committee in a firm that is not led by the managing partner, in, in my view, is doomed to failure. You've been involved in promoting diversity in the profession for a long time, four decades, in fact, um, and even before studies and reports and articles about, about why diversity should be a topic in the legal profession. Um, how have you seen this uh, diversity um, change, and, and do you see any um, equal representation in the legal profession in the near future? Well, there are some signs it, there's always things going on that make you feel uh, a little more optimistic. For example, it was just a conference uh, on the East Coast that was, I think in Florida, that was, that was designed, it was men and women both, how to get women and people of color to be the heads of these multi-district litigation class actions mm -hmm. and other class actions. You know, that, like Elizabeth Cabraser, you, you can name on one hand, yeah. the women and people of color, well, maybe not even one finger for the people of color, but... Uh, who are at the head of these enormous uh, uh, lawsuits. So that, it, that is important because there was a study done recently, as you probably know, from, uh, by the, some women in the Women's Commission of the ABA that, that, that was, it was, the numbers were staggering, you know, 70 or 80 percent of lead counsel uh, being men and even higher for, uh, than whatever the average is for, way higher for class action and a very high percentage where you had a, uh, a white man on both sides. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, that, I think, is what gave rise to this conference and so on. And I think the judges more and more are actually doing things to try to um, change that, in, in, including assigning the lead counsel status to women and people of color, but also uh, people like Yvonne Gonzalez-Rogers and um, mm -hmm. I think Bill Alsop. And so a lot of judges are saying, look, I want to see a woman or a person of color arguing this motion. Right. Yeah. And I won't hold an argument. I won't even have you argue this if you don't. And so what do you know? They find somebody to, to their hearts and minds follow. Uh, Comes down so, to the wallets. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, you know, it's certainly, um, there, are, there are some reason for optimism uh, to some degree. And certainly the judiciary is more uh, diverse than it than it used to be. Yes. Although, of course, with Trump as, uh, you know, you don't have to be a man to really be a, a frighteningly horrible judge, of course. Uh, and I'm sure that that Trump will be able to find some truly despicable women to, to be on the bench. But uh, but uh, nevertheless, I mean, so, I mean, Bush certainly found a truly despicable African-American man to be on the bench, didn't he? So, uh, but, um, but the fact is that it's a much more diverse judiciary than you see. The things that bother me in the profession, uh, in terms of trends that I think are are um, are scary, are the increasing concentration of firms. The when you have firms merge, two very large firms merge, mm -hmm. and the managing partner, instead of being in your own city, is off in Hong Kong or something, uh, or on the other side of the country, even. Uh, then the kind of loyalty to a lot of the issues that, that, that were incredibly important to the managing partner in San Francisco, like diversity and so on, mm -hmm. or pro bono, or giving money to groups like California Women Lawyers or Equal Rights Advocates, mm -hmm. go by the boards if you have 72 offices all over the world and, uh, and, and everybody crying for 
the money of the firms. As it is, the firms give something like one-tenth of one percent of their gross to uh, legal services and uh, to uh, nonprofits, and I mean, it's a minuscule amount. Uh, but, uh, and so I think particularly this, these, these new corporate arrangements like Swiss for Rhines, which really are designed to kind of, uh, uh, I think, they're not designed to minimize giving back to society by lawyers, but they're set up to maximize profits. And if, you're, if, if the bottom line is what you're talking about all the time without respect to any of the obligations of the profession, but dealing with loss surely it's only as a business, then, then progress is gonna is gonna grind to a halt. I think uh, um, for diversity and to some, and to some great degree to um, to giving back. When I first was the um, executive director of the San Francisco Bar, there were eight big firms that I called the noblesse oblige firms, mm -hmm. and these were the firms that they were the biggest in town, and they saw it as their moral obligation to give back. And mm -hmm. if you could convince them that you would use their money the way they would if they only had the time. There was no end of the amount. That's why it was so great going from being a civil rights lawyer to being the head of the bar. Yeah. Like you died and went to heaven, you know. <laughs> uh, Resources. <laughs> and even What's very conservative this? people were, yeah. you know, Republicans were willing and sometimes eager to give money to legal services, for example. Yeah. Uh, there are a lot of very conservative members of Congress who actually do believe in the Legal Services Corporation. Yes. Yeah. Particularly now that it can't bring class actions or bring actions having to do with choice or, you know. I, I I have another question, and it, it it's about what you just said, but then also uh, a previous thing you touched upon. You said the luckier you are, the more you have to give back, and you're saying that you feel that there's a fear that that companies are stopping their philanthropy. You know, what what why do you think that's happening, and and why do you think that the luckier you are? I mean, I agree with you, but why do you think the luckier you are, the more you got to give? Well, I mean, the truth is that if you're a lucky person, it sure is no skin off your nose to give back. Uh, but uh, what is that expression, to whom much is given, much is expected? And, the, and so, but, you know, I was just sort of raised with that. But it's, uh, you know, it's always been kind of, uh, both from, from both sides of the political spectrum, a kind of a, a feeling that there's a real obligation uh, to give back. And, and of course, all those studies that show that, that pe low-income people give a far greater percentage of their I, income yeah. to help other people yeah. uh, because they're closer to I mean, for lots of reasons, I'm sure, but they're closer to it. Uh, uh, but I think that, you know, more and more, for example, in big firms, they, even the ones that are not these huge Swiss Vereins and so on, that they're, they're filling their, their equity partner ranks, and there used to be no distinction between partner and equity and non-equity and equity partner. Now, of course, that's where it's the non-equity powerless partner group mm -hmm. that women and minorities are concentrated in. Yeah. But to the extent that they're that they are filling their equity partner ranks by laterals, which is very much the case, uh, then again, laterals are overwhelmingly likely to be uh, white men. And there have been studies to show that, uh, that firms that are single-tier firms and that promote from within, mm -hmm. To partnership as opposed to using laterals, I think that it's like five times as more likely to be more diverse. Mm -hmm. uh, and so the idea that that even if you get into a firm and you work like a dog and you know, ordinarily would be promoted to partner, now you're promoted if you're a woman or a person of color without a big book of business, you're promoted to non-equity partner. Uh, but your chances of becoming equity partner are are uh, are 
pretty uh, negligible. And of course, the refusal of law to make any accommodation for families continues to be a huge problem. But every time I get into that area, I always feel a little guilty because I really do think that my generation did yours a great disservice by harping on, you know, you can't have it all. And that, I mean, I think you can. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's just all is, you know, uh, changes uh, over time. But the failure to provide uh, off ramps and on ramps and, uh, well, there's a lot of off ramps out of the legal <laughs> profession, but not the, you know, very little in the way of on ramps. Uh, and to have any kind of real flexibility uh, at all, uh, which has been exacerbated by the electronic age, mm -hmm. uh, since they can find you anywhere, <laughs> uh, I think, uh, you know, has really um, has exacerbated the 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 problem for women. Yeah, I, I didn't uh, get married till my mid-30s and had one child then in my mid-30s, and I was teaching at the time, and there was a child care center in Golden Gate, which of course I got rid of almost immediately, but, it, I, but I benefited from it. Mm -hmm. uh, but getting back to your thing about giving back, I, I do think that if, that if you're, whether you got to be comfortable, financially comfortable in your life by inheritance, by hard work, or mm -hmm. by luck, and some combination of all of those with my particular situation, then uh, it does seem to me that, uh, that knowing that, in fact, luck had a lot to do with it, and of course, inheritances are nothing but but uh, Windfalls. Being, well, windfalls, yeah, being born, you know, an accident of, uh, of birth. Uh, just like then not I being think born in Bosnia, right? Exactly. Mm -hmm. Then I think you really do have an obligation to recognize that and to do something about leveling the playing field. So it's funny. We, when I was at the bar, we had never been involved much in school stuff. But we had a, we had one president who was really interested in starting law academies and in, in very necessitous high schools, uh -huh. and that that was a fantastic program. And then my daughter was applying to colleges, and she had every advantage in the world, and I still handled it extraordinarily badly. I mean, I was just a jerk, and I really, I felt I had a cosmic debt to, to kind of figure if, if it's this hard for, for somebody like me, and most of the people I know with kids that have every, every material advantage imaginable, you know, what is, what can it possibly be for uh, everybody else? And so that's yeah. when we started the school to college uh, program, which really did make a difference. And, and it was so easy, in a way, to make a difference. Just, just I, the looks on the faces of those Balboa High School students when uh, a college counselor from uh, a private school was helping us out a lot, he said, just, he said, Let me, let's just look at some, any old college in the Midwest, places they'd never heard of, like Grinnell and Bucknell and Oberlin, mm -hmm. places like that. And he said, let's see how many scholarships, free money, are available in these schools? Put aside loans and all that, just scholarships. Mm -hmm. And they were staggered. They had absolutely no concept yeah. of, of the existence of this kind of thing. Yeah. And let alone having actually seen places that were any different from very few, if any, educa higher educational institutions they had, they had seen. And you never know what it is that's going to just trigger somebody's uh, emotional um, confidence that, yeah, they could do this, they, they could go to it. college. And, yeah. and uh, so you just sort of throw it at a wall, but you, you, know, you try everything you can, and, uh, and really give them a potpourri of uh, opportunities and, and skills to try to uh, 
open up those doors and then um, some things work with some people and some others and so on but it really it really makes it makes a huge difference but in my case one of the reasons I wanted to do that program was just the being faced with you know personally experiencing it uh, and realizing that uh, it, it has to be a mountain to climb for most people absolutely now you spoke a little bit before we we started recording about um, you can't think of your biggest failure. Um, do you want to talk well, about Well, you know, you, yeah, you, you all sent me a list of possible questions, and what is your biggest failure? And I asked my husband, I'm like, what do you think? He said, I'm not getting into that. <laughs> good uh, call. On his uh, yeah, really good call. Yeah. He's a smart man. He's a very, very canny fellow. Um, I really, you know, because I have been very lucky, it's not, you know, I lost my parents, and, you know, I've lost loved ones, uh, and those were personal uh losses but um but in terms of really big failures you know i've been very lucky that way but to the extent that things didn't come out quite the way i would have planned uh -huh. and wanted at the time i have to say that uh in most cases it turned out to be a very good thing and i know it sounds like some ghastly pollyanna thing but for example i was teaching at golden gate i had tenure just uh and golden gate went into an economic uh uh, all the law schools did for one year in 1984 into an economic slide. And all the other schools, you know, around the country, what they did is they put people, they got them to go someplace else. They, you know, they did unpaid leave for a while to people go to order or whatever. Golden Gate decided just to lay off their entire, you know, well into the tenure track. It was all last in, first out. So it wiped out all of the minorities and virtually all of the women who had been hired by Judy McKelvey, the second dean in the country. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, even into the tenure track, including Bill Hing, who's one of the, you know, nationally prominent immigration law people. Uh, and it was, you know, and Pat Williams, who... Yeah. <laughs> that Williams, I mean, she's tenured at Columbia. She got a MacArthur. She has a column for the Nation magazine, but she wasn't. But Golden Gate didn't didn't want to keep her. So, so they wow. so yeah. it was a massive layoff, and we were given a year, year under double ALS rules. You have a year to before they can uh, actually actualize it, mm -hmm. and um, and it was depressing. You know, I was unhappy about that, and. Yet, I ended up in, my next job was to be executive director and general counsel at the San Francisco Bar, which never in a million years would I have done if I hadn't been looking for a job. In fact, I didn't even know about it. I don't even know that I was a member of the bar at the time. And my husband said, you know, this is a job you could do. And, uh, and that job was, you know, without question, the best job I ever had. So there, it's not that I haven't gotten laid off from jobs. It ha it's not, I applied to be a judge uh, in the early days of Gray Davis not understanding that if you were anti-death penalty, that was that was the end of the inquiry. Yeah. Um, and didn't get that. And yet, you know, we ended up then deciding to move to New York for a while, just rent the place in the hate and go to New York. And that's when I ended up the head of the women judges group. But And it was so much fun. And it would have been very hard on my marriage. My husband's a lot older than I am. He was bored. Uh, it really <laughs> would have been tough to have been a judge. Yeah. Uh, a job that is not a very flexible job. No. And so, also somewhat lonely is what I hear. And I think you might be just a little bit too social to, <laughs> to do that. Yeah, I think so. I And, you know, later somebody was saying, you know, can, you know it, it's just so different from your temperament to do that. 
And uh, and so it would have been very difficult. It would not have been the job for me. But at the time, I was unhappy about it. Uh, yeah. Uh, so, again, I don't, don't see this exactly as massive failures, although they certainly failed to get what it was I thought. Well, I did want at the time. But but it, it led to other things that, uh, and again, very often it was just a, a stroke of luck that I ended up in this other thing. But so much is uh, uh, luck. You know, I went out to lunch. I, I don't know, I told the story, it's a contrast, I don't think so. I was in between jobs during the layoff, right after the layoff, before I went to the bar. Mm -hmm. I, was having, I, I was having lunch with everyone in the world. I was having lunch with a woman who I thought was person X. Well, she wasn't. Mm -hmm. And halfway through, I realized after a very short time that she wasn't at all who I thought she was. I had no idea who she was, uh -huh. actually. <laughs> and <laughs> I mean, I knew her name, but I... <laughs> and Wrong bio. Yeah. <laughs> every, and uh, so then, about a month later, she calls me up and says, you know, I was sitting next to a guy who needs somebody kind of like you. And so I called him up in that afternoon. It was actually before the, the bar. Uh, and I had a job. That's so, fantastic. I mean, and, and you talk about accidents. Uh, well, one of my favorite quotes is actually, um, is it's, it's a saying, it's armed with every precious failure. And I think that's kind of what you're explaining right now is that you might, people might be able to say, oh, that was a failure, but it was precious and it got you somewhere else. Yeah. That was, that was where you needed to be. So then what would your greatest accomplishment be? Can you narrow it down? Because you've, you've got quite a list. My daughter. To choose one. <laughs> that, is, that is a very, very I mean, sweet she's a person in her own right. But yeah, she's a civil rights lawyer uh -huh. and she wears her heart on her sleeve. Uh, and um, and she's just a, a, an absolutely magnificent person. Um, and then again, you know, I uh, I'm heterosexual, but and so it was easier for me than a lot of my friends who uh, weren't. But the fact is that I had a, what could only be called a a, a pretty uh, distressing history romantically until I ran into my husband, who I'd known. I mean. He, because I had known Marvin and Faye mm -hmm. Stender, uh, but the only way I learned that they weren't a couple anymore was that he and I were together on the Judiciary Committee of the San Francisco Bar Association. Uh, and I was on that committee because they thought I was a Chicana. And Fred Corella appointed me thinking I was a Chicana because I'd been at Maldef. So you were meeting a quota. Uh-huh. I was meeting a quota. Well, you got in the door. I got in the door, and I never left. Uh, so that's what I'm doing with CWL right now. I'm like, uh, you're going to have to drag me out by my, you know. You're staying. My hair, okay. you're not getting me out. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, so. so. Well, propinquity is everything, you know. I mean, it's uh, if you're not there, then, then, the table, then, then the whatever serendipity could come from, you know. Yeah. Exactly. Interesting. Um, I, I, we have some kind of funnier questions for you. I was, when we were at, uh, I was at the CWL conference and somebody brought up the notion, and this is where I realized I had implicit bias against women. Uh-huh. Um, somebody brought up the notion that one day there could be an all-female Supreme Court. And my mind blew. I was like, what? That could happen? And then they made the point that, well, it's been all male for so many years. Why couldn't it be all female? I mean, do you think we're ever going to see that? Do you think it is possible? Do you think that we could get there? Yeah, I think so. I mean, look at, you know, in California, you had our chief justice was a woman. And uh, the, you know, the three, per in, in California, the three-person uh, group that has to okay 
judicial appointments to the courts of appeal and to the Supreme Court, but mm-hmm. really just the Supreme Court, uh, is the Chief Justice, the Attorney General, mm-hmm. and the senior presiding judge of the Court of Appeals. And so we had uh, Kamala Harris, yes, right. Joan Dempsey Klein, uh-huh. and of course, Tani Kantil Sakuwe. And I'll tell you, you know, not that long ago, the idea that that group would be all women was sort of mind-boggling. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, I can see that happening. Uh, but it's almost like recovering from surgery, you know, you, uh, which I've had a lot of in my day. You know, at first you figure, oh God, it's gonna always be this way. And then you feel a lot better, but you're at another plateau and you think, oh God, it's gonna always be this way because you know, this isn't good enough and so on and so on. And then when it finally, when you're finally basically back, you kind of don't even notice. And I think in a way, uh, by the time we have an all women Supreme Court, which I think is entirely possible, I think in a way it won't be all that noticeable. For one thing, mm-hmm. you'll probably have a couple of truly despicable women on there. And, uh, and you know, and some really good ones, you know, because, uh, because there's... We're all human. Uh, well, yeah, yeah, and, you know, and because, because uh, women suffer a lot from because consciousness, as the Marxists say, you know, mm-hmm. in terms of not really voting their own self-interest so often. But um, that's probably an intolerant thing to say, but there it is, the fact that 54% of white women voted for Trump still absolutely astonishes me. Yeah. Um, I, I do want to, I do want to very lightly touch upon what's going on in, in the realm of politics recently um, and not necessarily talk about being anti-Trump or pro-Hillary or what have you. But, you know, I have trouble going to bed at night because I'm worried about what's coming next. What's, what's the thing that keeps you up? Is there, is there one thing that really, really frightens you about Well, nuclear war, I think, is probably the most frightening. And, you know, I'm of a generation where the Cuban Missile Crisis, I was in high school. Yeah. Uh, But, um, uh, you know, Hillary was a classmate of mine as a friend, and so obviously it's pretty, you know, clear where I was on this. But I I think that uh, the combination of, of a lack of education... Of hi- and a knowledge of history at all. Uh, I mean, like you look at Spicer's comments on the Holocaust, and it's horrifying. But, but you know, the, the most horrifying was he didn't know. He, he, you know, not only you know the, the politics abhorrent, uh, uh, but but and and the level of intellect so startlingly low. But but the lack of education the lack of any knowledge of history i mean you may not you may not uh believe in affirmative action or you may not believe uh in um in various actions to try to level the playing field but to really not know about really about the holocaust is is pretty surprising so i uh and pretty dismaying um so I guess uh, to me, you know, people say, see, I wouldn't be surprised if Trump actually ended up impeached because he is so, uh, he has not surrounded himself with smart, knowledgeable people who know anything about the separation of powers and about what's criminal and what's not. And so it wouldn't surprise me. Uh, but then, you know, are, then people say, well, yeah, but then you'd have Pence, Pence mm-hmm. who is evil, but uh, in my view, uh, but not but in my view, he, yes, but he's not—he's not crazy, and uh, and I really think that Trump is actually mentally ill, and and well, I do, and uh, I think there's ample evidence of that, and uh, and 
so to me, the biggest worry, the two, the two hugest worries, as he would say, huge, 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 uh, are nuclear war and yeah. the climate change issue. Yeah. And I've never been. When your father's an atomic energy commissioner, you kind of stay away from environmental stuff for the most part. That's never been a, my cause, but uh, but it's but it's it's undeniable. And and the, the and and the fact is, he doesn't really believe in anything. So in surrounding himself by somebody like Bannon and so forth, you know, who really do believe this stuff, it's it's pretty it's pretty scary. And then of course you have everything else. The uh, the uh, the extraordinary uh, racism and homophobia and although you know I think I think he's sort of just going along on the uh, trans stuff I think he I don't think he gives a damn about any of that stuff uh, but you know the abortion stuff is very very scary uh, the whole health issue thing is very scary uh, uh, the dismantling of any program that that deals with equality you know the, the thing that my you know from the beginning my husband Marvin always said, you know, what'll save us is that is the thing that you rail against all the rest of the time, which is the intransigence of bureaucracy. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's saving us right now because he is so completely unknowledgeable about how government works right. and about bureaucracies yeah. uh, and so incapable of concentrating on anything long enough to put anybody in many of these offices. So. Without that, then people just sort of trudge along. And it may be that if Bannon is being edged out, as it looks like he may be, that some of the dismantling will, will slow down because he doesn't really believe in it. Uh, uh, so, and, you know, much as I'm you know, not an admirer of his family, they, they're not crazy the way he is. Yeah. I, I know that Meek and I have spoken about this before together, but one of the, th the thing that was so heartbreaking about the election, I thought, and I've, I've heard this a lot from different people, was that, and if you put aside politics, it was just the, the sheer fact that there was a, a man who was not necessarily, no political background, you know, he, he, do, he doesn't know about the Constitution, he's never held political office, running against a woman who, by all accounts, is probably the, the most, most qualified we've most seen. Most decorated, exactly. I mean, <laughs> Secretary of State, and experience. experience. I mean, whether you like her or not, you know. And so what do you have to say about that? I mean, because I know a lot of people who are, are still just sort of Misogyny. Bro broken I mean, by I that. Mean, I think that um, I, I think that, that I certainly underestimated the misogyny issue. And even putting aside hatred of women, just, uh, you know, how can a woman be be president. It's like when I became a was sworn in in Connecticut um, <laughs> as a lawyer. My nephew, who who was surrounded by women doctors and women, said and he was about two and a half or three. He said she's not a lawyer. She's a she. Mm. Wow. Now that wasn't misogyny. It was what he had learned. You yeah. know, somehow, despite his family, maybe in nursery school. I don't know, but but I I think my friends and I all underestimated. Uh, the fact that people that that a certain kind of person was never going to vote for a woman was never, and Hillary uh, because she refuses to uh, uh, behave the way that that uh, men a lot of men think women should behave, although you know I think she's a classy classy person, uh, 
you know, certain aspects of her personality, um, I think, uh, made it easy to jump on. And, the, you know, and the, and the email stuff, which was absolutely nothing, was mishandled and, and so on. But the fact is that looking back on it, I think she, that, that it would, putting aside, and the Russians very clearly yeah. were involved as well. And that could have been what swung the election. That wouldn't surprise me at all. That and the FBI guy there at the end, which... Uh, but but the misogyny was you know you know in retrospect was undeniable and I've 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 come to believe that for example Biden could have won and I at the time I never would have occurred yeah. to me that Biden could have won uh, but almost anyone who wasn't a woman against this right. monster could have probably could have won but getting to your point about you know not sleeping well I was at a fundraiser for equal rights advocates at somebody's house and was talking to this one woman and we were talking about the fact that. Nobody we know has slept well since November 8th. People are drinking more. They're doing more drugs. They're, uh, I kept thinking of that movie Air, Airplane yeah. mm -hmm. where Lloyd Bridges says, Christ, I, and I picked last week to stop sniffing glue. Yeah. Well, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So all the bad habits people had put aside, suddenly we're kind of back for a while. But I think that there is, without question, I'm sure there's been many psychologists who uh, measure this, I think that the level of anxiety and depression and... Um, and uh, real, uh, real concern for the country and for democracy and for one's own personal. Yeah, even people are so insulated. Yeah, we're insulated uh, in California in, in a so lot of many ways, and in a socioeconomic bracket yep. that insulates. The fact is that uh, that the that when you when you really have a nutcase as head of the United States, the you know, most powerful position in the world, it's it's very alarming. And uh, when left to his own devices, uh, very scary. Uh, always comes out with the wrong decision. I think is the way. Un uncertainty, I think, is, is definitely. But every once in a while, you know, things happen that do make you just laugh out loud. And I have to say that Spicer often does that for me. Uh, uh, but, you know, it's interesting. I had to make a speech uh, last week, and I... Often when I have to make speeches, I, I go on and I, I go on websites to see you know funny things that have been said about Donald Trump. And mm -hmm. the truth is that none of them were really funny because the reality is so tragic and so dangerous that it's just impossible for it to really make you laugh out loud. Although frankly, watching Alex, uh, what's his name? Alec Baldwin. Well, Alec Baldwin. <laughs> I was going to ask you. I watch <laughs> SNL now, and part of me laughs, and the other part of me is like, this is really. This is true. Disturbing. I know. It's very, very disturbing. Um, yeah. Can we, let's turn the topic just a little bit because I know we're, we're running out of time. Um, uh, yeah, so we want to know if you had a mantra or something that you um, held on to, especially during uh, some of your more challenging um, projects uh, during uh, that helped you get through. Um, I uh, remember reading an article that um, you wrote, uh, somebody wrote about you or you um talked about your mother and some of the quotes. Mm -hmm. uh, there's several quotes that um, you shared with the readers. Um, do you want to take something from there or any well, other? Well, you know, actually, to? one of the, I, I was standing on a subway train, a crowded subway train about a month ago, standing next to a guy from a big firm that I was trying to size up about how much money I'd hit him up for, for equal rights advocates. Mm -hmm. I mean, by accident, he was standing yeah. right there. Uh, and this young woman that I didn't recognize, uh, comes up and she says, you know, I wasn't going to say anything, but, you know, I was a student when you were dean, and I just wanted to say hello. And she said, but, and I wasn't going to come up and say hello. She said, and then I thought of that quote from your mother's that you used from her letter to her children. It says, I re it's not the things that I did that maybe didn't come out quite the way I'd want to uh, or said that keep me up at night. It's the things I didn't do and the things I didn't say. And so in a way, yeah. I... 
I have always had that as a mantra. And another sort of thing that both of my parents felt so strongly that I feel incredibly strongly, and it's just so true, is that it is so easy to lend a hand to somebody else coming up behind you because, or adjacent to you or whatever, mm -hmm. it almost never costs you a thing. And it really can change someone's life. And one of the things I really, when my father had a stroke and really kind of didn't know who he was, every once in a while he kind of come back again a little bit. And he actually said once in one of those periods, he says, you know, the thing I miss the most is not being able to help anybody. Mm. And uh, and so and when I left the bar, I really in New York, I really the first year in New York, I realized I was that had been such a bully pulpit, and it's been, it had been a position where you could take you know like a young lawyer of color and stick him on the judiciary committee the way Frank Farrell thought I mm -hmm. he was doing, <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, and and it can change their life because they're the most powerful people in the bar tend to yeah. be on that committee and so on. and you can, and you have endless uh, opportunities to do that in certain kinds of jobs. But anybody who is well, is pretty well situated in their life, you know, always has a, the ability to do that. And that, and my mother particularly, who had been so uh, poor, always felt that way. Uh, and uh, and the sort of, you can't take it with you. You know, a lot of them are these sort of old mantras, but you can't, you know. And uh, um, so those are some of the things that, um, come to mind. And then, you know, another just old thing, this too shall pass. You know, one of the things that I did learn, and it gets to your question about what, what would the future possibly be with this, but you know, when you've lived, when when I think about my parents who lived through the depression, they lived through, I've taken my mother's family, and through the war, World War II, mm -hmm. and, and uh, the McCarthy period, and Richard Nixon, mm -hmm. and uh, who looks like a pretty liberal, very liberal guy next to what we have uh, right now. But mm -hmm. one of the things you, that you do learn with age that is that is useful uh, is that the way you feel at any one moment is not you're not going to feel that way all the time. So that when you're really worried about something or other, you know, it's just it's not going to worry you as much sort of the next day probably or the next week and so on and. Um, and things change all the time, not always for the better, of course. But uh, so I, um, and I guess I also, as I said earlier, I really do believe that uh, that you can have it all, and that it uh, that it it's easy for me to say because so much has been given to me. But on the other hand, if you if you tell people you can't have it all, uh, then it can become a self fulfilling prophecy. Mm -hmm. And of course, everyone's definition changes of all, but it really just, it, to me, it sort of means being happy in the situation you're in and, fe and leading a kind of a balanced life. Um, so uh, I guess that would be my, my answer to you. I think that's a great place to, to end the, this. And you've been a wonderful, wonderful uh, addition to this podcast, and I want to thank you for being here. And um, tune in next time to Seat at the Table. Thank you. My pleasure.